2021 was a wild year and it continues to get pretty crazy for fintech. They were supposed to merge with Visa and it didn't happen. Another payment trend that really took off is Affirm went public in January. It did pretty well right off the bat. Berkshire Hathaway was included in a new funding round with a $500 million stake from them. $750 million raised in total at a $30 billion valuation. The story of how Africa, India, and other geographies have seen crazy valuations, crazy funding for FinTech over the last few months as well. FinTech definitely is sort of taking over the world. Hi everyone, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today, where we talk about all things FinTech. And in this episode, I am joined by one of our beloved FTT experts, Charlie Ma, who is one of Plaid's first hires and currently works at Alloy in New York. And we're gonna dive into some things that happened in the first half of the year, which Charlie, I, I read your piece, like we're just scratching the surface here. There was so much that went on. <laughs> Yeah, 20, 2021 was uh, a wild year and it con continues to get uh, pretty crazy for fintech, I think. It really does. Let's start off with, I mentioned that you were one of Plaid's first employees. So let's start off with Plaid because they had a really big news that went down in what, January or February, I believe, right? I think, it was, I think it was like end of January when they sort of officially announced it. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they were supposed to merge with Visa and it, it didn't happen, did it? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think uh, so. I think Plaid had announced that uh, you know Visa was planning to acquire Plaid in, in kind of I think it was January of 2019 or 2020. I think 2020 rather. What before the pandemic uh, uh, really hit that Visa and Plaid were going to be joining forces. Uh, I think that the amount was a, a little over five billion, if I remember. Uh, and you know, customary. Oh, it's going to take a few months to to pass regulatory review, and we don't expect any any hurdles in there and. Lo and behold, it ended up taking much longer. Uh, as it turns out, I guess the DOJ uh, did have some things to kind of highlight. Um, and so I think in, finally, kind of one year after the deal was announced, uh, and it seemed like Plaid and Visa kind of mutually decided that it made sense to, to part ways uh, and Plaid kind of back to being a private company. Yeah, it, it seems like it's worked out well for Plaid so far. They they raised a new funding round. What was the valuation of this new one? It, it was over $5 billion. I just forget exactly what it was. <laughs> it was, was. definitely over $5 billion. I, I want to say it was, it was $13 billion plus, but don't quote me on it. Um, yeah, it was I, a lot. I, I think that, yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, obviously the, the, the pandemic uh, as it relates to, to fintech kind of spurred a lot of, I think, fast growth adoption curves amongst consumers and businesses of using digital products in the financial services. And I think anything around that generally acts as a really great headwind for Plaid uh, and, and the companies that, that they support and that they work with. Um, so it, it looks like it's, it's going to be even potentially a better outcome than, 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 than Plaid kind of expected uh, from them walking away from the deal. Yeah, and then Visa just made an acquisition in Europe where obviously the market is very different in terms of data sharing and whatnot. But it's interesting to see them, you know, do a different acquisition in a different market, hoping that that one goes through and a chance for them to expand um, in a, a different geography than the U.S. Yeah, yeah, no, I think um, them acquiring Tink was uh, was was funny to funny to funny to see. I think I believe the Plat deal did. Kind of, it did have to go through sort of regulatory scrutiny on the EU and UK side. And my understanding was 
with the initial visa deal, it did pass the regulators in the UK and EU. And we'll be curious to see if anything does change from their perspective, um, reading kind of what the DOJ filed as related to Plaid for uh, Tink and, and Visa. Uh, will, will be interesting to follow along. And that one, I think, was still like two or three billion. So not a small price tag for an acquisition either. Yeah, a ton of activity. I mean, we also, I think, I think the MasterCard and Finicity deal like finally completed or went through late last year or so. So there, there has been more activity and consolidation in kind of this, this open banking data infrastructure space. But I think Plaid continues to kind of be the biggest company in the space so far. I'm cheating a little bit with my next one. We're going to talk about two pieces of news that sort of go together a little bit. There's two massive payments companies, TransferWise or Wise now, um, and Stripe. So both of them have had a major funding announcement, and Wise is actually going to go public in the UK now. So on this front, I just find it interesting. Wise is more than a decade old. It started out as just this way to send money abroad a lot more cheaply than if you were working with banks and other uh, financial providers where the fees are can just be astronomical and you're not getting very good conversion rates on the uh, Forex. And then Stripe, obviously, they had a long rumored 90-something billion dollar round. And we're all kind of waiting for them to go public too. They don't need the money, so I guess there's no impetus for them to have to go public. But I don't know, Charlie, I for one would love to be able to buy shares of Stripe if I could. <laughs> I think uh, I think everybody seems to be wanting to. If anyone does have any Stripe secondaries, let us know. But yeah, we're I think, that, I think that's the request for everybody. Yeah. I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how these companies, now that they're going public, or at least Wise is going public a little bit later in the year, like the market's starting to cool off a little bit. I don't know what the UK stocks have been doing. I'd assume it's fairly similar to what's been happening in the US since a lot of global markets tend to follow each other, especially when there's a global pandemic going on. But it'll be interesting to see how that goes and just dive into any more filings. Like WISE has had to give some financial information regardless, even though they've been private, but just really get, you know, these quarterly updates on their growth, etc. I find will be fascinating. And then Stripe hopefully ends up going that route too. I'm sure if there are secondaries, they're trading higher than the 95 billion that they raised funding oh, yeah, at just because it was like a month or two ago, maybe a little bit longer and just the payments market has just been outrageous. You look at public companies like PayPal and Square and Visa and others and their stocks have done extremely well during the pandemic since people have been doing more online shopping, using credit cards instead of cash because they're worried cash is going to give them COVID. Maybe not so much anymore, but it, it was long <laughs> yeah. enough that now they they just naturally grab their card instead of the cash. It made that habit a thing. Yeah, no, I think uh, record adoption of, of digitization of within financial services. And I think we're seeing across B2B, B2C use cases, uh, pretty much across the board where everyone had to figure out how to get online ASAP, it wasn't just, you know, for internet or digital first companies, it's every company had to, um, now that everyone was kind of sheltering at home and, and you couldn't go into a branch, you couldn't go in, in person, you couldn't exchange checks at, uh, at the bank and, and pay people out. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty crazy time. Another payment trend that really took off, and this is your second story, so the third one we'll talk about today, is a firm went public in January. It was debating going public late last year, and then it delayed it, and it finally went out in January. Um, 
it, it did pretty well right off the bat. Yeah, I would say I don't I don't know where it's at right now, but I think right off the bat, I mean, popped a hundred percent, right? And Q Q kind of Bill Gurley uh, IPO road showing, but uh, either way, it resulted in I think a really really uh, big outcome for founders, employees, and investors at a firm. Um, I think kind of kind of kicked off what I what, what what's been. A pretty crazy 2021 in regards to fintech company ex- fintech companies exiting, uh, where I think we've seen after that a firm IPO, obviously a lot of, of healthy investor demand. I remember every time I think there was an update about the roadshow, they kept moving uh, the target and opening price further and further up, right? Um, and so it shows that there there is a lot of demand you know, for fintech companies that are high growth, that are tech first. Um, and a lot of these companies are being valued you know, with tech valuations and kind of not like traditional kind of banking valuations. And so healthy premiums uh, to the multiples uh, that, that are being comped there, which I think then drives into the venture market, right? Where uh, there's kind of new record comps being set uh, in the public markets, uh, there's new comps and new examples of market size and how big this opportunity can get, which I think inherently does drive uh, activity, even in the earliest stages of, uh, of fintech companies. Um, but I, it, it does, I, don't, I don't have the stats, but it does seem as though there's been a record amount of fintech companies you know, exiting this year. We've always talked about Wise and Affirm, and there's a bunch more companies that are spacking and that whole thing. And it's been pretty fun to watch, I would say. I think I remember even just a couple of years ago, uh, there was this debate around, you know, does Stripe ever have to go public, right? Like they can just keep raising up rounds, uh, bringing in investors that you know, sort of have public equity, public exposure LPs. Um, and there isn't any need to necessarily go public. And now it seems as though founders are recognizing that there's a window right now where um, exiting uh, 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 in today's kind of market is, is is a pretty healthy market to exit in. And I'm curious to see how long it's going to last. You mentioned the SPAC trend. That was one that Ian and I talked about in our six topics to end um, last year and some of the big themes for the second half of the year. And on on a firm share price, I own all of four shares of a firm. So I have followed it. I didn't <laughs> buy it at the IPO. I bought it later. It Priced around like 29, I want to say it opened at 46.50. It shot up to 140. So, what is that like tripling in valuation or whatever in the first few weeks? And now it's trading at $66. And I bought it somewhere around like 60 or 70, I forget where. But it's been much more stable here. The valuation it gives it now is right around like 18 billion, which if you look at a firm and compare it to Klarna, which also has to give out a lot of numbers just because of different EU regulations, it makes a lot of sense. Like the thing that didn't make sense for a while was that a firm had a larger valuation than Klarna, which Klarna is a story that we did not pick to talk about today, but they are one that's in your piece and they raised a massive funding round. Um, and their valuation is now higher than what a firm's is. And that makes more sense just based on the maturity of the business, like their revenues, cash flow, balance sheet, et cetera. Whereas before, what I think the market cap got up to, it was like a firm was double that what Klarna was. And that just didn't make sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I which think, is, um, I mean, buy, buy now, pay later seems to be the 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 infrastructure du jour in, in fintech. Yeah, we have Klarna obviously raising a massive round. Afterpay, I think, is is thinking about listing in the U.S., kind of cross-listing due to the growth of the U.S. business. Um, and I feel I, I think I made a joke with with some investors uh, a couple of weeks ago that it, it seems that the past few months we're seeing 
kind of verticalized BNPL software. For Unima Vertical, there's a BNPL provider company trying to build there for medical payments, for uh, construction, for homework. Uh, it's the, the, the new hot thing, uh, which will be um, interesting to see how, how, how that goes in the next few years. Speaking of banking, Nubank is one that I want to talk about. And my gosh, like they've had so much going on this year. So I'm looking at your piece because I want to make sure I get these number numbers right. So it raised back in February. They announced a round where it was $400 million at a $25 billion valuation. After that, in May, there was a rumor that they were looking to go public in the U.S. at a valuation over that $25 billion. And then recently, just like a couple weeks ago, Berkshire Hathaway was included in a new funding round with a $500 million stake from them, $750 million raised in total at a $30 billion valuation. So yeah, Nubank's not even that old. How many years old are they? Like four or five? They've just grown so. like a weed. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what they. I think they've raised now two billion dollars or so funding since. I think they're, they technically started in twenty thirteen, but they're probably arguably the, the largest neo bank from terms of valuation in the world right now. And by uh, a long shot, is, in in many areas too. I think Chime most recent valuation was what like ten or thirteen. So you're looking at three mm-hmm. times the valuation roughly. Their ability to execute and really kind of dominate the, the kind of. Uh, Latam market, especially kind of Brazil, has been um, pretty pretty incredible to watch. I need to have Frank Rotman, who was one of their very first investors on the podcast, to just talk about this. And I'm trying to get Newbank on as well. So if Newbank is listening, come on and tell your story. But essentially, like the banking market in Brazil and Mexico, where they've been uh, like their first two markets, it's very different than what it is in the US and Europe and elsewhere. It's essentially... Like it's run like a monopoly. There's a lot of underbanked people. They only have cell phones. They don't have access to a bank. They might have to drive like three hours to go to a bank branch if they wanted to. So there was this big gap. Whereas in the U.S., yes, there are banking deserts, but it's less so than what it is in um, in Latin America. And the other benefit is while in the U.S., the banking system is pretty good and regulators might not love banks. They don't hate banks though. The regulators hate banks in Latin America. They mm-hmm. loved the fact that there were these startups coming up that were going to lower fees for people and make it easier for customers to access bank accounts and all this stuff. So it definitely, um, you know, they had a lot of what wind in their sails going into this market as well, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah, no, and I think it's interesting to try to figure out kind of learnings. It's, it's almost like uh, uh, emerging economies are kind of leapfrogging, I think, what some of the infrastructure and, and consumer adoption behaviors that you've even seen in the U.S., right? I think there's been a lot kind of to be said about the super app um, and, and being able to offer all just a multitude of other financial products. I think Nubank has... Like it's like eight or nine different product lines, right? It's it's not just savings account and credit cards. It's insurance, mobile payments, products for businesses, for consumers. It's just like it's just such a massive, massive kind of addressable market that they're targeting bringing on. Uh, I think points to where you know some of the U.S. neo banking and, and kind of new sources of revenue are, are starting to point towards, but uh, I think it remains to be seen as to whether that 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 type of model can be successful here in the U.S. One that was not as successful is Simple. Well, it was successful in many ways, and then it got acquired, and it was not so successful after. I haven't followed this story that closely, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts here, because you seem to have followed it pretty closely. Yeah, the team there, I would say, like, kind of fintech OGs, right, where they they really kind of paved the way 
for this idea of what a neobank truly represents. So the branchless banking and building a digital mobile first product in the market. Uh, and um, in this case, like there was not really a first mover advantage, right? I think if you've talked to Shamir and the, the, the team at Simple, when they were first, you know, starting to build out banker relationships and building out uh, their integrations, it took them, you know, several years from, hey, we want to do this to being able to actually swipe a card and get, uh, have the payment accepted uh, at a merchant. Whereas nowadays that sort of, I would say product development curve has has been significantly collapsed thanks to just a lot of uh, the innovation that I think Simple actually spurred in terms of infrastructure um, uh, and just more and more companies out there trying to push uh, and make it easier to build new fintech products. But um, they got acquired by BBVA. Uh, I forgot when. It was a few years ago. I want to say four or five years ago, but it could be wrong. It was a good exit. You know, it wasn't an amazing, crazy exit, but a good exit. Uh, and then the moment that BBVA and PNC announced that they were kind of merging together. It seemed as though the kind of writing was on the wall for Simple, where it seemed as though there's a lot more consolidation. I think there's been, I've debated around uh, with a few people as to whether or not uh, this does reflect sort of some of the the downsides of being very reliant upon Dermot exempt interchange, right? So uh, for, for readers that may or may not familiar with, there's this whole uh, kind of piece of regulation uh, called the Dermot Amendment in the US that if you're basically a very large bank, uh, the amount of interchange that you can make on debit transactions, so cards that go over debit card rails, uh, is capped to be actually very, very low. Uh, and so a lot of uh, these neobanks, including Chime, including Simple, including many others, uh, oftentimes when you go look at their bank sponsor, the underlying bank sponsor that they work with uh, is a, a bank that is what's called uh, Durban exempt. So they're usually... Um, they they had they they don't have enough uh, AUM or deposits under management to hit uh, kind of Durban amendment, and as a result, they're actually able to charge the full amount of interchange for debit transactions, uh, which makes the unit economics for interchange and for users spending on those cards to be uh, much more interesting, right? But then the flip side, what that means is for these neo banks as they get larger and larger, right? Like I, I I'd be very surprised if I say if Chase goes out and buys a neo bank. Uh, because once they bring that company into their ecosystem, uh, the unit economics of those users completely changes because the interchange that they can charge uh, goes from you know 1.5% to just cents per transactions. Uh, and, and so particularly as, as more and more neobanks get larger in the US, they're going to have to figure out how to really pave their own kind of independent path uh, towards generating, I would say, like real like long-term value amongst the customers and generating real revenue. Uh, and there's still an interesting question as to what does the future of Durban uh, continue to look like? I think if you talk to a lot of execs in the space, like that is something that they've been spending a lot of time on as a lot of banks also view that as a kind of fundamental disadvantage that they have versus other competitors in the space, which I think was the intent uh, that, that the regulators had around that, but or rather Congress had, I would say. Um, but it's an interesting uh, example and definitely like an end of an era to, to see Simple kind of shut down. The last story I want to talk about is actually a little bit of a mix. It's more of just the story of how Africa, India, and other geographies have seen crazy valuations, crazy funding uh, for fintech over the last few months as well. So one that I think of, Chipper Cash, we had Wiza on the podcast. I forget what month it was. It was somewhere around, I think it was April because I just moved to Austin when we interviewed him. So they raised $100 million in a Series C at over a $1 billion valuation. 
Paytm in India is preparing to have one of the largest IPOs, if not the largest IPO India has ever seen. And then Grow with a two W's, not one, it, uh, an investment app for millennials um, is raising 83 million over a $1 billion valuation as well in India. Um, so it just seems like, I remember my conversation with Wiza, I personally, I don't know if you feel this way too, Charlie, but I often find myself thinking like all of this stuff is happening in the US and I have no idea what the fintech market looks like elsewhere. And I remember Wiza saying like, oh yeah, we have our version of a Robinhood here. We have our version of Challenger Banks here. And I was like, I have no idea that this is all going on in Africa. This is crazy. I, I do some angel investing and I've made a couple of investments internationally, but it, it, each market is, is, is totally different, right? They're, Consumer behaviors, competitive landscape, regulatory landscape is, is super different, but fintech definitely is sort of taking over the world, uh, I think, right? Where there's uh, a lot of activity uh, and a lot of uh, energy amongst fintech investors. Where it was funny, I think um, even you know, back in, in 2012, 2013, 2014, you know, up to 2015, 2016, uh, there weren't there, there, there were very, very few, I think, like fintech focused funds, right? It wasn't a, a big enough practice and there weren't enough kind of successful stories uh, to invest in that space. And now I think every fund has multiple fintech partners. Uh, every region has localized venture partners focused on, on fintech. Uh, so it's definitely here and feels as though it's going to be here to stay for a while. But no, I, I've been talking to a bunch, of, a bunch of other kind of operators in international markets and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in Africa. I, I think this is a general excitement of depending upon what region that you're looking at, it looks like, you know, what fintech looked like in the U.S. five years ago, where a ton of kind of green space, a lot of interesting founders and a lot of interesting companies and, and value to be built uh, in a lot of these emerging markets still. You worked at Plaid. You ha Don't you guys sign, like, sign some sort of agreement saying that you have to say fintech is everywhere and stuff like that when you work there? <laughs> uh, we genuinely believe it, though, right? I think that uh, it's funny. When I, when I joined Plaid in kind of 2014, 2015, uh, it was this like weirdly contrarian thing to say. And I think even if you talk to the founders here at Allo, my current company, uh, I think both companies had notoriously difficult fundraisers where they would pitch to investors and say, we're going to sell into the fintech market. Uh, and most investors would say, great, fintech is not a big enough market for you to sell into. There just, there just isn't enough company demand in that space. And I think in retrospect, that's, you know, uh, a pretty wrong statement, I would say. Um, but nowadays that that's become, I think, just uh, pretty normal to say. Totally. I think especially after the pandemic where so much has moved online and fintech just grew exponentially that it's even easier to say that, you know, the space is everywhere and it's most definitely large enough to sell into. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. That is all we have for today, though. We we did good. We covered a lot. Like I said, though, we only scratched the surface. So definitely go to fintechtoday.co to check out Charlie's piece. It comes out on Thursday, the same day that this podcast is going out. Who knows if there's going to be some other big story that happened, you know, 36 <laughs> hours between yeah. now and when It'll this probably gets probably outdated, exactly. Robinhood will probably actually put out its filing to go public, and we would have wanted to talk about that. But you know what? It's, it's just the state of the world these days. <laughs> Otherwise, go check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you podcast. Be sure to rate us, and we will see you again next time. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you.